everybody, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by you know searching Medium Cool Pod. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram. We'll pop up. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, also, please subscribe if you would. Again, uh, shameless self-promotion. We really... Uh, it really helps out content creators. In this case, we are those creators. So we appreciate any help you can. Subscribe, review, rate, the whole deal. It help us out. All right, guys. Today is an interesting episode. I'm excited. Uh, Matthew Sosi and I are going to talk about the next two Bergman films in our Ingmar Bergman Cinema uh, Marathon. We're going to be talking about The Virgin Spring and Through a Glass Darkly. I hope you enjoy those long-form conversations with him. Uh, we had a great time talking about them. Uh, but also, uh, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. Uh, we're going to have a poll coming out about Paul Verhoeven movies in about, I think, you know, two weeks from now or so is going to be a Paul Verhoeven episode that we're doing because it's his birthday. And uh, we're going to be doing a poll on which you'd rather uh, Joe and I talk about. I think Sam will probably join us. We're going to talk about either RoboCop Total Recall, or Starship Troopers. So we're going to have a poll out on social media. Definitely go check that out. Again, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Again, you can email us, MediumCoolPod at Gmail. Send us which one of those three you're interested in hearing, and we will take the highest uh, rated one or whatever. So uh, hopefully that would be fun. I also wanted to mention that uh, I had, had an article with the Midwest Film Journal come out last week called... Um, being a part why can't I talk today the hell's going on I had an article come out (laughs) on in on the mid oh my god in the mid the Midwest Film Journal published an article that I wrote there we go got it out finally it was on the professional from 1944 directed by Luke Besson and uh or Besson um uh, they did this uh whole group article thing on Natalie Portman it's called Natalie's Rap and uh, I did The Professional because it was her first film. And so uh, that's out there. I'll try to remember to put the uh, a link in the show notes, and you guys can go check that out. Definitely go check out Midwest Film Journal. They're great guys uh, putting that out. And thanks to uh, Evan and Nick and all those guys over there for letting me you know, be a part of that. That was really great. I look forward to being a part of more in the future, uh, if they'll have me. I think they will, hopefully. Uh, next thing I want to talk about real quick also is the Criterion Channel. Okay, I'm not sponsored by them, though I would love to. So Criterion, I know you're listening. <laughs> and uh, I would love to sponsor you. But the Criterion Channel is a streaming service by the Criterion Collection, which is a, distribu- a distribution company of just really great films. I just love it. I have tons of their movies in my collection. And uh, I've always been a Criterion fan ever since I've loved movies. And what they do is every month or every few months, they'll, uh, well, all the time, really. But I mean, you know, they go through cycles of uh, where they program these marathons. And this month they did, you know, art house animations. So you have like really interesting animated films. Uh, they did the Wong Kar- World of Wong Kar Wai because they just released a box set of Wong Kar Wai movies, which we'll actually be talking about two of those movies. Uh, Jake Bottolieri and I will be talking about two Wong Kar Wai movies next week, Chung King Express and Fallen Angels, both of which are in that box set. Uh, but also, they programmed an awesome neo-noir marathon on the Criterion Channel. 27 films they posted for this thing. I'm going to read the list real quick just because I think this is great. It starts in 1970 with Cotton Comes to Harlem, Across 110th Street, 
The Long Goodbye, which we will definitely talk about uh, at some point. It's in my favorite film's pantheon. Uh, Roman Plansky, The Walking Pile of Dog Vomit. Uh, he made a really great film, though, called Chinatown in 1974. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. Uh, Night Moves, Farewell, My Lovely, which is uh, it stars Robert Mitchum, old as fuck Robert Mitchum. Um, <clears throat> but it's a remake of one of my favorite noirs, which I'll talk about when I finally release the noir piece that I've been working on uh, called Murder, My Sweet. They're both based on the same book. Uh, the Cassavetes film, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which we covered here on the show. The American Friend by Vim Vendors. The Big Sleep, which is a remake or a readaptation of the book uh, from the famous Bogart film. Uh, this is the 1978 version. A film that I was actually unfamiliar with. Somehow this slipped under my radar entirely. It's called Eyes of Laura Mars. I'm excited to watch that. The Onion Field from 1979. Body Heat from 1981. Thief from 1981, which was just recently on one of our polls for uh, which film I should talk about for my pick out of my favorites pantheon. I love Thief. Blowout, also another film. It's by Brian De Palma. It's on my uh, favorites list. A lot of these we're going to be talking about, so this is just a great program. Cutter's Way from 1981. Blood Simple, the first Coen Brothers film from 1984. Uh, Body Double from Brian De Palma. The Hit um, from Stephen Frears. Trouble in Mind, which if I understand correctly, that film was like, they thought it was lost for a long time or something. I don't know. I need to look into it. I'm excited to watch it just because it seems kind of like a rare find. Manhunter by Michael Mann. Uh, Mona Lisa. The Bedroom Window. Homicide. Swoon. Suture. The Last Seduction. And then jumping from 1994 all the way to 2005, uh, Brick which is uh, a film that got a lot of popularity because it was basically a film noir that takes place in a high school. So, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. A whole great list, 27 films. And uh, I plan to watch several of these. I've already watched, and I'm not going to cover them this week, but I'll fit them into others. I've already re-watched the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple. I hadn't seen it in probably 15 years, at least. Uh, Brian De Palma's Body Double, I rewatched, which is a ridiculous movie. Can't wait to talk about that sometime. And then I watched Stephen Frears for the first time. I watched his film, uh, The Hit, from 1984. I plan to watch several others. I'm not watching them in any order, per se, just whatever you know tickles my fancy at the time. Uh, but I want to talk about a lot of these because this also fits into the noir marathon that I want to uh, release here soon. And neo-noir is great, and maybe it'll give you the motivation you need to go check out some of this stuff. Again, it starts in 1970 and mostly goes into the early to mid-90s, with the exception of Brick from 2005. If you have not subscribed to the Criterion channel and you're like a cinephile, just a total film geek, uh, what are you waiting on? They have great programs. you got to go watch these marathons. You'll never have anything. You know, you'll never have to look for anything to watch because they just have great stuff. So anyways, all that to say, we have a lot coming up here soon. Um, but today, I'm going to talk about a couple of new movies I saw. It's finally getting back to the new movie stuff. And I'm going to be talking about the film that just came out last Friday, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Uh, that came out uh, just a few days ago. And then uh, I'll talk about that. But first, I'm going to talk about a film that's been out for a month. But my wife and I finally, you know, built up the courage to go into public and uh, for the first film since the pandemic started, we went to the movies, and we finally saw A Quiet Place Part 2. And I'm going to talk about that right now. A Quiet Place Part 2 
from May 28th, 2021, about a little over a month ago, directed by John Krasinski, or Jim from The Office, uh, written by John Krasinski, but apparently the characters were co-developed by Scott Beck and Brian Woods, starring, uh, the film stars Emily Blunt, Killian Murphy, John Krasinski, uh, Millicent Simmons, which I'll talk about her brief, like, in a moment, she's great, and Noah Jupe. Picking up where part one left off, the Abbott family have left their cozy home where the first film takes place and now face the terrors of the outside world. Forced to venture into the unknown, they realize that these audibly enhanced creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats that lurk beyond the sand path that they've walked for so long. As the Abbots progress their journey, they run into Emmett, a Little League parent that the Abbots knew in his past life, who helps them find a way to put an end to the threat once and for all. Or does he? Now, I want to touch on three things in particular to keep this short. The performances, the other threats that lurk beyond the sand path, as I mentioned earlier. But first, I want to address the structure to this blossoming franchise and the monsters that possess it. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that A Quiet Place will have a part three, and likely a part four, and a part five, etc. You know, there is a Last of Us slash Walking Dead vibe to this. And because of that, the Walking Dead part especially... They will never run out of content to film. Now, I'm not saying it should be done, but, you know, if they wanted to, they could easily keep the franchise afloat. Why? Because the structure is set up in a way that allows for more and doesn't necessarily need more. So if a character dies, for example, another can take their place. It's not about the Abbott family entirely, though that they are the heart of the franchise for now, but it's about the monsters, the life one must live to survive, and the specific process one must perform in order to destroy the threat. The film is constantly showing you how the Abbots must live, and it's less about who they are as people, less about their personality, less about developing them as full-fledged humans, etc. It's about developing them to the extent the movie needs them to be developed in order for us, the viewers, to care enough for them, but also so we can see them in intense moments and hope they don't die. That's kind of the, the main thing that they need to establish. And I gotta say, this film certainly offers its share of tension. I would go as far as to say the vast majority of the film, maybe even north of 75%, is pure survival mode tension. It's no wreck, in my opinion, the 2007 Spanish horror film that I've talked about on our top 15 horror films. It was like the first three episodes we did. Uh, you know, wreck is crazy. You know, it makes me feel a much more palpable tension than this. But where A Quiet Place excels above its contemporary horror counterparts is, um, you know, it really uses narrative and technique to build its tension, not just forced jump scares and convoluted gory tales. Other films try like way too hard, and though this at times does too, uh, to an extent, it's actually largely successful, I think. We understand the methods of survival by now, and Krasinski's actually really good at accomplishing, you know, a lot of the tension. And the narrative is exclusively propelled by that tension. Every moment seems to be written to fulfill that goal. And, uh, you know, on a narrative level, this film is unfortunately kind of exhausting, though. Listen, I love a movie that can put me through the ringer, okay? But this narrative is messy and focuses far too much on trying to tie together each moment of tension rather than, you know, building some kind of a story. And that's fine, you know? There are moments... 
you know, that really worked for me, but there are also moments that made me facepalm because, you know, I just wanted to scream, stop showing me a stupid character doing stupid things because it's making me not care anymore. You know, but it's, it's, it's not that those moments are particularly unbelievable, but rather, you know, they were frustrating and not in a good way. And I think that's, you know, in large part because once things, quote, paid off, it wasn't anything particularly rewarding for the viewer, okay? And I think a lot of times horror payoffs should be rewarding to the viewer. I don't. I think there are exceptions, don't get me wrong, but this is not one of them. So the narrative is a slave to the production and technique, and I think the execution is well done, but the writing left me wanting quite a bit more. Um, and, you know, it was acceptable enough, but, you know, really pulls the film down for me overall. Next, the other threats that lurk beyond the sand path. Now, there are villains in this that are, you know, not blind aliens with an acute sense of hearing. Um, and uh, unfortunately, nothing was really done with these other villains. Now, it could be setting up sequels where this will be more of a threat, okay? And that may be very cool. You know, I, I'm into it. But it was completely ineffective here. Again, it could be building to something later but there wasn't much to praise about its use here in this specific film. Uh, A Quiet Place Part 2, not great. Now, to clarify, I'm always up for an additional threat that goes into more relatable territory. You know, it's something that we can imagine. Uh, But we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. In this film, it left me wanting. But the alien monsters, though, from the first film and that have carried over into this one, have the potential to be really effective villains if Krasinski and co., uh, can come up with more creative ways for people to, you know, affect these creatures. Like, you know, Emmett, when he has a, a trip wire for intruders that does nothing but drop a bunch of glass bottles that clang and make loud noises. Of course, you know, we know the creatures are attracted to sound. So you sit there going, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> because... You know, as our protagonists hit this tripwire, we know that they're in peril, right? They're in trouble at that moment. And that's that's a that's a really powerful and effective way of using that. It wasn't something that I would have imagined. It was a creative use of that. And uh, it's simple things like that that can give life to what would undoubtedly become a stale rehash before long. And so they have to stay creative. Now, finally, the performances are overall quite good. Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt have some wonderful moments, but Millicent Simmons is actually really awesome here as the deaf daughter. And uh, I think I think she takes a lot of an, or rather I like, sorry, I like that she takes a lot of initiative and takes pride in her independence. I love that about the character. But she, I mean she makes bad choices a lot of times, but but you know, I mean she's also what like a teenager or something like I I don't put it past a teenager to try to do that. Someone especially like her character uh, that has such takes such initiative and has such pride in her independence. So, you know, uh, it's really cool, too, because she's she inherently brings tension due to her lack of hearing. So, you know, it's the idea that she may not even know if she's making noise. You know, that's just a constant concern. And it's just really uh, I thought it was really effective. Now, Speaking of, the use of sound is pretty cool. I'll just throw this in here real quick. There are a lot of perspectives at play here with different characters, and I never got lost in it. It was just really done well, and it's it's easy to follow. Uh, but again, you know, it's execution of these techniques 
that Krasinski gets right, and I really appreciate that. Now, in some, I think A Quiet Place will be a decent franchise as it progresses. Uh, it will undoubtedly have a next part. Not that the film, I think, needs one, but I think it definitely opens itself up. And uh, because I'm sure this did very well, there will be another one. I just believe that with all my heart. But, you know, it has all of the necessary components. We have uh, interesting characters. We have interesting mechanics at play here. You know, what how people have to live. And we have an interesting creature. So, you know, it's it's something that's marketable. But it all comes down to creativity and execution. Now, without those two things, it will just become another horror franchise just to get lost in the mix. But part two, specifically, continues what part one did. And though, you know, I didn't think it was quite as good as the first part, you know, it's perfectly adequate to continue the story. And, you know, what we saw in the first film really carries over and they explore new areas of what we learned in the first film. They explore new areas here, uh, which is more than I can say, quite frankly, about most horror films nowadays. It was interesting. So I'm not in love with the film, but would happily see it again. If you're a horror fan and, you know, haven't seen this yet, I sincerely think you should give it a shot. You might really dig it. And if you're not a horror fan, I actually think there's still a lot here for you to enjoy. Um, or if you're my dad, you know, if, if my dad and I watched this, we'd probably pick apart certain things that don't really make sense. But, you know, who cares? It's a great, it's, it was a good time. And that's the important thing. I give this film a three and a half out of five. If you've seen the film and agree or disagree, please hit us up on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. I'll be right back to talk about Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. All right, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Cannot Be Televised. I'm just going to call it Summer of Soul from now on. But the point is, it was directed by Questlove. If you know The Roots, the hip-hop group The Roots, uh, or if you know Jimmy Fallon's show, he's the drummer on there because The Roots work for Jimmy Fallon. Anyways, uh, Questlove made this, and it was released July 2nd, 2021. It was last Friday, and it's streaming on Hulu. So if you get a chance, feel free to go check this out. Summer of Soul is a feature documentary about the legendary 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, which celebrated African-American music and culture and promoted black pride and unity. The documentary examines the festival, which was held uh, at Mount Morris Park, now known as Marcus Garvey Park, in Harlem, and lasted for six weeks. That's crazy to me. Despite having a large attendance and performers such as Stevie Wonder, uh, Mahalia Jackson, Nina Simone, The Fifth Dimension, The Staple Singers, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and Sly and the Family Stone, the, family, or the festival rather was seen as obscure in pop culture, something that the documentarians investigate. Summer of Soul premiered on January 28th, 2021 at the Sundance Film Festival where it won the Grand Jury Prize and Audience Award in the U.S. Documentary Competition. Uh, you know, held the same year as Woodstock, the Harlem Cultural Festival was filmed, but no broadcaster was interested in releasing it back in 1969. And for 52 years, those tapes sat and sat unused until Amir Thompson, better known as Questlove, as I mentioned before from The Roots, unearthed those tapes and made it into what we see here. And damn, does it feel important. Now, the music is great, of course, and it's 
awesome to see a 19-year-old Stevie Wonder get down, okay? But it's the filming of this doc I'm interested in. It's not, you know, actual cinema verite like a D.A. Pennebaker or the Maisel's brothers, you know, would do. Uh, where, you know, we sit like a fly on the wall and watch an experiential document of a pastime. Uh, but there are moments that remind me of those classic concert documentaries like Monterey Pop or Woodstock. You know, we get to see the artists play music and perform, but we also get to see just as much of the crowd experiencing it. And I think that is really interesting. You know, and uh, it's like the crowd has no idea how important or revolutionary this would later be known. <laughs> then there are a few talking head sequences of musicians uh, and and uh, like Reverend Jesse Jackson and, you know, people like that. Uh, but uh, my favorite parts were the musicians that watched their performance back uh, then, you know, uh, like now they're watching their past performance. And, you know, it's a complete gift to see them light up and emote as they watch intently. Um, and, and, you know, the historical aspect of the film is incredible. I mean, for that, it deserves so many stars. <laughs> um, I'm just so glad that this exists. But Summer of Soul is also about culture, which is, in the name, Harlem Cultural Festival. The film explores the importance of the festival, not only from the perspective of the attendees and not only from the perspective of the artist who played, but also where this was in history, in time. Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated the year prior in 1968, and the riots in black communities uh, were breaking out in 1969 in protest of the treatment of people of color, as well as many other things, but namely African Americans uh, being mistreated. You know, Harlem was a community of color, and this festival was not only, you know, free to people to go, so, you know, it was offering this community and, and the surrounding areas a free opportunity to be a part of and, and celebrate this community. Um, but, you know, uh, it was a celebration, and by proxy, a celebration of life, love, and social justice, and even spirituality to an extent. There is an entire segment of the film dedicated to gospel music. And, it, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite chunks, believe it or not. And this has, well, maybe it has something to do with my spiritual background. I don't know, because I grew up in the church and stuff. And, you know, I do have a, a history with that. But there was something to this that was different, though. You know, it's uh, not, I liked it not only because it reminded me of my late mother, you know, who passed away a few years ago. My mom could sing. And she had an incredibly powerful voice. And uh, Mahalia Jackson, whenever she was singing, she specifically reminded me of my mom because of the power in her voice. I mean, man, she had such a guttural power. And that was just like my mom. I mean, at my mom's funerals, my uh, grandpa, who was facilitating it, uh, her, her father, uh, played a song from an album my mom made. And just the opening line where she just belts out this one note just broke me down, you know. And there's something in voices, and we get a lot of those powerful voices here. But also, you know, I love this because these people, for the time, were breaking the rules. Gospel music, you know, didn't belong at a blues festival. It belonged in a church. You didn't dance or, you know, play with secular bands or anything like that, you know. Uh, but these gospel artists kicked ass, and, you know, they took names you know, in the name of good, not just some hegemonic doctrine, you know, and I just loved their conviction here. It was really awesome. 
But despite the film just, you know, holding an innate power due to its subject matter, the film could be more balanced, I believe. It didn't seem to know exactly where it wanted to be. Uh, Sometimes it was an experiential document. Other times it was a talking head kind of informative thing. Other times it was a historical piece. You know, all of these things are great, but it just... You know, it it made me wish that this was like a 10-part TV series, you know, that would focus on each of these different aspects. Because, again, you'd go through whole chunks where it's very experiential, then you'd go through chunks where it's only historical. You know, I don't know. It just seemed imbalanced to me as I was watching it. Now, to clarify, it's still powerful as it is. It did not ruin it in any way. It's just if I'm going to be critical here, if I'm going to look at it as it is, I just think you know, that it could be more consistent and more focused. But in the end, you know, we're in a pandemic, okay? And we have been without live music for a long time. And Summer of Soul feels like, you know, it fills a void of sorts. It came out at the perfect time when social justice is at the forefront of the political conversation, when we're starved to experience the power of live musicians, and, you know, when we need to be reminded that the battles that we fight now have been fought for many, many years. I love this movie. I gave the film a four and a half out of five. If you've seen it and agree or disagree, and you should definitely go see it. Again, it's on Hulu for free. Just go check it out. But if you've seen it and agree or disagree, please hit us up on social media, Medium Coupon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email us at mediumcoupon at gmail.com. I would love to get your feedback on Summer of Soul. Uh, next up, I'm going to meet up with Matthew Sosi, and we are going to talk about Ingmar Bergman, starting with The Virgin Spring. All right, everybody, I'm here with Matthew Sosi. You're not drinking this time, so uh, say hello, please. Hello. (laughs) As he holds up a beer and takes a drink. Uh, Really happy to have Matthew back. We are in the middle of our Ingmar Bergman Cinema Marathon. Uh, I just just finished, I just completed, uh, like two weeks ago when this comes out, uh, the early Bergman Marathon where I watched, uh, let me see if I can remember them, Crisis, Port of Call, Thirst... Um, Sawdust and Tinsel, Summer with Monica, Ooh. Summer Interlude. Like, there's seven of them. Um, and I'm curious, do you have a favorite pre-Smiles of a Summer Night Bergman? I do like Summers with Monica. And because I'm a pig male. But, and, and Sawdust <laughs> and Tinsel to a certain degree. But as if, if you listen to the, our conversation before, the Ingmar Bergman collection on Criterion, and by the way, thank you Criterion for doing this, we didn't get these for free. We paid for them. <laughs> but but it is curated in a way that it's not in chronological order. And it sounds like, awesome. you're you're kind of doing it in, in chronological order a little bit. I am. Um, and, and to a certain degree, in, in this case with Bergman's work, I get it. Because I think you would start with his early work, what, what he didn't direct or what he was starting to evolve as a filmmaker. And that might be a little bit of a challenge. And then we, we will get through, as you like to call it, we will get through long stretches of Bummerville. And, and fortunately, because it's curated and not chronological, it, it works out fine. But the early stuff is kind of cool. But I like that with any filmmaker. You, uh, I, was, I, was, uh, I was complimenting Austin on, Austin on his uh, artwork on his arms. And you know, Kubrick was the same way. To see Killer's Kiss and The Killing and those, you know, those early things of, okay, there's a little bit of something there that we're going to see 
you know, grow and mature as the filmmaker goes on. And that's definitely with the early stuff with Bergman. Absolutely. I 100%. And, and I, I look at it like this. Uh, the way that they have it laid out in the box set, kind of by theme and stuff, that is such a great... Uh, if you're looking into Bergman as theory, like looking yes. at him like in that way, it's perfect. Yeah. As a f- person who loves film history, I love watching them chronologically to watch someone grow and to pick up, like you just said, like pick up all those things. And sometimes it's a chore. I mean, but you know what? I, there wasn't a single Bergman film I would say I didn't like now there were somewhere i was pretty neutral on i don't care if i see him again you know like sure. stuff, stuff like that no, but- and and you know it's a job or it's something and it doesn't you know it doesn't uh it doesn't rattle your taint like other films and and that's a quote you need in the ad <laughs> campaign but but no i mean i think any any artist has those that are you know taint rattling free yeah it happened absolutely and i'll tell you what man sawdust and tinsel i think well let me start here i'll say summer interlude for some reason hit me something fierce there was something about that that might be my favorite but sawdust and tinsel's close and i'll tell you why if not for only the essentially the silent sequence that whole movie is victor herstrom director influence like i mean goodness gracious you can just go through early sweden uh, swedish uh silent cinema and just pick out all of these things that he's just taking inspiration from and I really loved that too. So those two are probably up there for me prior to Smiles of a Summer Night. Yeah, and I, I as I mentioned on the other show, nobody does inner turmoil like Ingmar Bergman. And there are certain degrees of turmoil that you get through, whether it's involving love, sex, politics, religion, your own sense of worth, your own embarrassment. We've we've talked about um, you know the farces. I mean. Um, uh, 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 smiles on a summer night is an example of <clears throat> where you, it's just a it's just embarrassment of classes and uh and and so between that and the silences and i think more actors need to learn more and more about silence just like directors need to learn more and more about silence and black and white to a certain degree um but a lot can be used with that and i think we now i'm going to be on the front porch and you can join me you know i think we're used to everything being constant and loud and brash and there's nothing wrong with exhaling and listening yeah absolutely yeah and I'll tell you, man, like it, what it feels like watching the early Bergman stuff. And we'll, we'll get to Virgin Spring here in a second. But the, the early Bergman stuff, what I like about it, watching it, is uh, he covers a lot of the same themes over and over, just usually from a different perspective. And it's almost right. like he really is trying, I mean, literally trying to find his voice. Like, like what? Because yeah. most of it's written by him, not all, but a lot of it is written by him as well. And uh, it was just really an interesting time you know and also following the cinematographers he was working with and seeing him work with uh you know who is it gunner fisher yes yeah and work with him and eventually yeah and eventually he'll get his he'll get his crew um you know you'll get your cinematographer and your editors and that sort of thing and if, if you're lucky enough and 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 bergman had his players i mean on stage and off stage and that's nice company to have because from a director standpoint, you have a shorthand. They know what you want. You know what you can get from them, and it just moves things along smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to be talking about Sven Nickvist, uh, the cinematographer, uh, which did both of these films. And uh, I'm not surprised that Bergman fell in love with his work and uh, gave Gunnar Fischer the boot. Though Fischer's good, 
man, this guy, yes. this guy's so no, Gunner, Gunner, and there's no, just I get, I, and as I, I keep recapping our episodes, you know, how great is it to be a director to have two badass cinematographers in your career? And yes, I love, I get excited about film and I, I love when it sounds like sports. So you can th- say things like spin Nick, miss motherfuckers. <laughs> there's, Cause you're that passionate about the, that person's work. Yeah. And, uh, and Sven's definitely that. Yeah. He's, he's great. Let's go ahead and move into it though. Uh, we're gonna we're 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 starting our trip to Bummerville today with Good Lord <laughs> the Virgin with Spring this, with the Virgin Spring the Virgin Spring from 1960 directed by Ingmar Bergman written by let's see if I can say it Ula Isaacson I said it pretty well me. actually um, that's that's pretty good pardon your Swedish <laughs> yeah <laughs> starring Max von Sydow uh, Brigitte Valberg and uh, Gunnel Lindblom. So, yeah, pardon my Swedish again. Uh, it was uh, released February 8th, 1960, the original Swedish release. The U.S. release was November 14th, 1960. I mean, this thing was nominated for the Palme d'Or at Cannes Film Festival. It won Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards and Golden Globes that year, among others. Dude, I cannot, before we get into this and before I give a little like lead-in, I cannot believe this won an Oscar. Now, I understand we got like Why a... No, 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 no. Dude, it's brutal. Right. Yes, like, it I, is. The other well, okay. The other thing is, I was like, what? And, and whether you write it up or you you uh, type it over, what else was nominated that year? But yeah, this is a hard. This is a hard film, and and I love the fact that you mentioned that the Golden Globes. And and okay, this is not the the two thousand twenty Golden Globes. You know, there wasn't there wasn't 1960s Ricky Gervais making fun of uh, of the Hollywood foreign press. You know, I would have loved to have seen the broadcast of the Golden Globes to see what <laughs> scene do you pick from the Virgin Spring yeah. in your mantra. I mean, the Oscars are different. The Oscars are slightly a little more upscale, in my honest opinion. But uh, yeah, hard sell, hard sell. <laughs> but dude, this this I mean, <laughs> do, I do you use a scene with Max von Sydow on a tree because <laughs> you're not going to use the scene in question no but yeah man that's a hard this is a this is a this is the groin kick of a film friends and and you should really watch it and uh, as i mentioned before if you're a fan of horror if you're a fan of west craven if you're a fan of last house on the left you need to watch the virgin spring yeah yeah we, we, yeah oh my god there's so much to talk about with this because i i understand <laughs> that we we got a censored version i understand that and i understand that some people may not but I can't even imagine, like, what can you censor without it still being so intense? It had to be crazy yeah. for a 1960 crowd. I, I can't imagine. But the film is set in medieval Sweden, and it starts when... Always an, a fun place. <laughs> always a fun place. Starts when an innocent yet pampered young virgin, Karin, uh, and her family's pregnant and jealous servant, Ingiri, uh, set out to deliver candles to a church that they must travel to. Along their way... Through the forest on horseback, a series of events lead Karin uh, choosing to proceed on her own, leaving Ingeri safely behind. So she thinks. So she uh, thinks. On her journey, now solo, uh, Karin meets three herdsmen who have secretly been stalking her. And there are two men and a boy, and Karin invites them to eat lunch with her. Eventually, the two older men rape and murder Cowdy, 1960, everybody. Academy Award winner. Uh, they rape and murder Karine in a truly shocking and violent manner. And this is 2021, Austin speaking. I was sincerely shocked 
by yeah. this by this thing. And only Ingeri returns to the family farm from the events that transpired in the woods. From there, Hitchcockian level tension, pure vengeance, and a bit of the old ultra violence are on display here. Your this arm film, is bulging. <laughs> this film feels like a fucked up fairy tale and is the movie that inspires Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left from 1972, which Matthew mentioned. The Virgin Spring was beautifully photographed by Sven Nickvist, whose first film with Bergman was Sawdust and Tinsel in 1953, which we kind of chatted about for a second. But this film is gorgeous. The direction is pure, and the narrative is striking, and the performances are fantastic. Matthew, my only lead into you is, what more can you say? <laughs> well, God, there's so much. No, um, first off is Sven. Um, and, and there was a series of films that, that Bergman has done beautifully outdoors. And you know, Wild Strawberries is a great example. This is a great example. As... As, and this is before the, the moment in question. Um, it's hard to film outdoors. And, and Bergman had a very small cast and crew. So, and he was not one of those guys sitting around for days with, a, with an eye scope waiting for the clouds to be to his liking. So the fact that you had, you're filming outdoors, you had a great cinematographer like Nick Vist that was able to have a balance of sunlight and shadow and the fact that you know most the the action in in as far as the the scene in question is dealing with outside, um, you know it, you you can do that stuff in post these days. And 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 the fact that they it, there's something I think admirable about going out there with a the camera and a crew and just capturing it, no matter how vile the, the moment and the subject is like that. Because and and the three boy the three men you have two grown men. And the third weak link who is supposed to bury the body and is so overridden with guilt and, and then just kind of does a half-assed job and runs away. You know, it's funny that you, you, you mentioned the fairy tale aspect of it. The, these three men, unbeknownst to them, go to the father's house to seek shelter for the night, the Max von Sydow character. So that adds... You know, I, I would love to have seen a full st an audience with this, with that kind of when that moment happens. Dude. I mean, it's it's absolutely dreadful. Yeah, brutal. I, I have to say this real quick because I, I want to yeah. talk about two scenes, and and I'm not going to deliberately spoil anything. But as you said last time, right. this this movie's like 61 years old. And yeah, so, you uh, know. we are going to be talking about certain aspects of it that just can't be helped. I don't think you can talk about it without mentioning some of these. But I want to talk about the structure real quick, the layout of this film, because it's so simple. And this is why the first act follows the farmer and the virgin. Um, and then the virgin sets off on her journey. That's the first act. Second act, virgin meets the herders. Inciting incident occurs. And, you know, the lead up to the execution of the rape and the murder and all of that. The second half of the second act is the herders at the farm, yeah. right? And then the yep. third act is the self-punishment, vengeance, and questioning of God. So, like, so you, you have—I'm sorry, you so you have—and and this has been very popular in the last few years. But we've had a number of thrillers where you have—it's not so much blood and gore, but the overlooming feeling of dread. The great examples, of course, are *Midsummer* and *Hereditary*, and you can go and 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 others that are similar like that. And in 1960, you have two 
you think the one moment of dread is over the, the the rape and murder of this girl and then we have another sense because the guys are at the parents house and so the fact that you get not one but two different kicks to the punt you know to your stomach watching this film i think uh, was a huge deal and probably forgotten by a lot of audience members in the in the early 60s yeah un- unfortunately because th- this packs a punch i i'm going to talk about this but i cannot wait to talk about what you just said at the family farm i want to go back to the inciting incident sure. as i call it which is the rape scene and i, I need this to be understood um i think oh, see it's so hard to talk about rape scenes because it sucks to say now this is you, a good rape scene. You don't, want to, say, yeah, you don't want to say it's a great rape <laughs> yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and by the way, never make that list. No. Never, never, never make that list. <laughs> and if you do, you're a you're a Twitter fan film boy and you should go away. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard to two white dudes, uh straight white dudes warding this gingerly as far as it's it's powerfully shot. It, I guess well, it's, it's 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 one of those movies that's not used in in and it's not exploitation. It has a purpose, right. and right. it's uh, it ends up actually having like a really powerful message. And um, I'll just say this: you know, rape scenes are really hard to pull off. And uh, as I already mentioned, it's it sounds terrible, but it's like when it's done well, it can be really meaningful. And again, it's right. just hard to talk about. But a lot of times rape scenes are used to either one establish like uh, someone or a group as bad guys or monsters, you know, just really shallow. Uh, and then another way might be a shallow attempt at establishing trauma. So sometimes they'll just put a character into a rape scene just so they have something traumatic, but they don't actually explore or deal with the consequences of that or or the grief that comes along with that and all of the other things that I would know nothing about. And so um, this movie's not that. Uh, the Virgin Spring actually deals with a lot of stuff here, and 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 uh, due to the religious subtext and you know the classic Bergman theme of regarding, or sorry, the the classic Bergman theme of you know the loss of innocence, we see that in a ton of Bergman movies, and both of which, uh, both of the movies we're talking about today deal with that. Uh, the rape sequence is not shallow exploitation; it's actually meaningful, and. I got to say this, it's so effective because there's no music during this thing. And it was it's hard to watch and any rape scene should be hard to watch, but we're talking about 1960 when we were in the middle of a production code where we couldn't come anywhere close to this kind of material. We couldn't even like hint at this because they no, like you're doing you're doing editing of and and I'll use an example of, you know, if if you have well, all right, I'll get one um, of the Bela Lugosi Dracula. Yeah. Where Dracula is leaning in closer and closer to the woman on the bed and then it just fades out. And then that's, that's as far as it goes. But as far as physical contact or, and, and, it, and it's similar to, you know, there was a code in Westerns where the shooter and the shootee could not be in the same frame. Yeah. And and so yeah, this was the, the footage of this scene is you know sixty years plus is is still really hard to watch it's, and 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 you know this they were setting a kind of a precedent at this time. I mean you know of course Sweden had different uh, had they didn't have they weren't oh, abiding yeah. by you know the motion picture production code 
And so the the thing is here, I I don't know if even to today, I've seen a murdered victim so limp. And when I say that, I mean like when, when they they rape her and then they murder her. Uh, the 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 man that has no tongue. So you know that's even more interesting. Yep. Might as well give him an eye patch. And so like there's no music. He beats her to death with this branch. And then she's just laying there and they start stripping her clothes off, not just to get her naked. They just leave her in like her undergarments um, just to like take yeah, all and, of her and, stuff. Well, that's a, and that's a plot point as yeah, well. We'll come so. back to that. But here's the thing. Like when they're yanking that off of her body, her body's just like, just like, uh, just being ripped apart. Like, <laughs> and it, it just, just that kind of realism in 1960. I can't think of another movie that has that kind of a visceral, and I could there could be one out there. I mean, I'm not saying there so, isn't, but this is really intense, man. Yeah, and playing hard, playing dead is hard to do because of the, the as you said, the removal of of garments and and the fact that you you can't move at all. I I've I've played dead on stage once, not to this not to this level, but we're used to as humans as as living, breathing humans, that if we are rolled over, you bounce over, there's some reaction. There's some, you know, re, you know, movement to go with that and to be able to not do that. And it's not just about the eyes. It's about the whole body. Um, you know, on more than one occasion, we have seen a funeral scene where the body in the coffin's eyes twitch. and it, But it's hard to do. It's really hard to do as an actor, especially when you are in a box space with a camera right here and, you know, you're supposed to show no movement whatsoever. I mean, it takes it takes great discipline. And I think uh, I think it was Brigitte Patterson, you know, that does an admirable job, is, uh, not just for the whole film as a, you know, for the film as a whole, but but as far as handling that sequence when her character is no longer of life. She, she's phenomenal. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so we get that. Um, and. And again, this symbolic nature, the symbolic nature of this, the loss of innocence, all of that. I also love that we get Ingeri, who is like this this family helper. She's pregnant. She has dark hair. She's riding a darker horse. She's pregnant. She represent you know representing by their standards, not Bergman's per se, but an impure woman, right? She might as well be wearing a black hat in a in a. Western, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then, but then you have, you have, uh, Karin that has this perfect, like just white hair, uh, you know, like she's like perfect blonde hair, like nice round, uh, innocent yeah. face. I mean, you know, and it, it's just, it even, he even plays with these kind of, like these kind of classic but, tropes of, of like characters yeah, I mean, just I think visually. It's, it's the whole thing of, if you're raised to be, good and pure and virginal and you know life gets in the way sometimes and if you are not you know again in the case of of a pregnant uh staff member and you are considered you know lower than what have you and yet you're still surviving and you become a plot point so yeah um i i tell young actors all the time man gray is more interesting than black and white and the more gray you can throw into a story the better dude 100 agree with you but so yep. back, I'm excited to get to this. This is what we've been like trying to like hold back from is when after they kill her, they, they go to the farmhouse. They continue traveling. They've taken her dress. They've taken all of her belongings. 
and they start and yeah, and the boy poorly. He throws a few bits poorly. of grass on her or something. Don't let him don't leave a boy to do a man's job. That's yeah. among other and, dumb things. But yeah. the second half of this second act, man, they, they go they go to the farmhouse. And this is Hitchcock all over it, man. This is the bomb theory. You, you know the bomb yep. theory. So for everybody yeah, yeah. at home, the, the it's the second half of rope. Basically, it's oh, like, yeah. you know, Max von Sydow is Jimmy Stewart. You're just like, when are, when is he just going to lay the smack down on these three bums? <laughs> on these three bums? Dude, I'll just say this. Hitchcock's bomb theory, the whole idea is basically that, you know, imagine a family sitting at a dinner table and there's a bomb underneath it. The family doesn't know the bomb exists, but we as the audience do. You know, that's yep. different than the family knowing and freaking out. Like, there's all different ways you can handle it. But Hitchcock was really big on the audience knowing things that the characters don't know and this building tension. And I know that uh, Bergman was fond of Hitchcock. I don't know if he had any oh, kind yes. of direct for this film. I don't know if this was actually a direct intentional thing. But this is Hitchcock's bomb, period. Because we know yep. they're the murderers. We know the farmers are the family. But they don't know each other. And holy shit, when whenever mm -hmm. they're causing a little bit of problem and the the victim's mother comes in and checks on the little boy because he's freaking out because he feels so much guilt and he feels sick and he can't eat. And she checks on him. And in order for them to thank them, like the farmers for uh, taking them in, they gift her the dress of their dead, oh. now dead daughter. So and cold. Dude. I'm edge of my fucking seat, Matthew. <laughs> like, I'm literally watching it. I, I'm like talking the way I am right now. You can look at me and tell I'm like excited talking yeah. about this because, dude, this is so intense. And the only other person I can think of that comes as close to this level of tension is Hitchcock. Uh, I mean, there are other people that do good. Kurosawa has some really awesome yeah. tense moments and stuff. But, dude, Hitchcock's the master and Bergman is number two right here, man. And I and I think from for for Max von Sydow's character, and, and, and I'll bring this back to 21st century audiences. Any Liam Neeson, Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood, whoever is your favorite revenge movie actor, this is Max's turn. Yeah. And this this might be I, I I don't I try not to do lists. I'm not a list person. You can read lists forever on the internet, but this is definitely one of my favorite Max von Sydow performances, uh, Hitchcock or otherwise, or Hitchcock, but Bergman or otherwise, because it it's it, to to quote my daughter the first time she saw the ending of Hamlet, it's not going to end good. It's just not going to end good. And, and you know, you, you want, I wish a pizza and beer crowd could see the Virgin Spring because they would be, I think they'd be just as rowdy with any other midnight exploitation film. In fact, um, those scenes remind me of speaking, going back to your arm when Alex in Clockwork Orange goes back to the house yeah. that he and the Drew, you know, the, his, uh, his other buddies invaded and, and raped and pillaged. That other sense of dread of, oh, you're going to get your clock clean in a major, major way. His was a lot more cerebral. Uh, but yeah, when 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 Max von Sydow finds out what's going on, it's uh, it's pizza and beer night for the audience. If you're really into bloodthirsty revenge. Yeah. And I'll just say that, that that's kind of what I'm leaving for 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 listeners to go to go yes. uh, watch because I <laughs> could go I on and. Yeah, I could I could give you a play by play of the end, but I'm just gonna say, I to this day 
have never seen a movie uh, like during the production code. Again, this is Swedish, so it wasn't for that. But any movie during production code era, dude, I don't know if I've seen one that gets this violent and this like, dude, it's heavy. And it's not just the violence, man. It's it is the father trying to atone for what he will do. And I'll just speak it that way. Holy crap, man. When he when he does what he does, and you know what I'm talking about. I'm speaking vaguely, yeah. which is probably going to annoy all the listeners. But, dude, that there's, is... There's, there's a number of films about ordinary men who at, who do extraordinary acts of violence. And I will... Uh, it's a long list, but I'll just mention the first Death Wish, A History of Violence, the original Straw Dogs. I don't acknowledge the remake. Sorry, Rod Lurie. Um, and to a certain degree, this film, especially because he's a man of the, you know, he's a man of the cloth to a certain degree. Uh, and the atonement that he does before and after is, is really harsh. It's yeah. really, really harsh for Cedar's character. Yeah. And I, I really, I really, really value maybe in large part because I grew up in the church and I've went through my own challenges with God, but dude, Cedar's character, his, his, toil and his kind of debate one-sided debate with god throughout like oh man Uh, dude imagine an american remake with paul schrader (laughs) i'm I'm surprised it didn't happen i mean and to a certain degree you could say moments of hardcore is like that yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely and and i am surprised we haven't gotten a direct remake of this because this this would unfortunately appeal to audiences it'd be terrible i'm not saying i want it i think i think last house on the left was enough and and, as as i mentioned earlier i mentioned before um if you've seen Wes craven's last house on the left which is also a for the time this is uh after rosemary's baby and before the exorcist and texas chainsaw massacre but for a moment in time this was the scary ass movie of the year um, they had the great ad campaign and the, you know, just pretend it's only a movie and the subject matter. And it's, it's harsh. It's absolutely harsh. And part of it is Wes Craven was inspired by the Virgin Spring. Yeah. There was a remake that was done in the aughts and cause that happens a lot. And I will say the one thing that the remake had going for it is they had more, they had actual actors in that one compared to Wes Craven's. You know, shout out to Tony Goldwyn, but that but the remake was more inspired by Wes Craven's Last House on the Left than it was Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring, as far as the shots and the story and the and the output. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's it's a, again hard watch. Man, I mean, what what else can one say about The Virgin Spring? It, what I love is that it's so simple. I already I walked you through each act. You know, mm-hmm. um, broken it. It's in fourths, basically. This could, you know, in some ways, just be a play, like many of his movies. You know, but like like a like, uh, glass darkly, which we'll get to in a which bit. we'll get to in a moment. Yeah, I was, <laughs> that's exactly it. And man, but it's this is one of those movies I don't feel like you really spoil. Not that we are, but I'm just saying I, it's not, not really, really much of a movie that you spoil because it's so simple. Real quick, you, you you've seen this. A ton of times. It's not like the narrative's doing anything crazy. It's the way the story's told. It's how it's executed. It's how it's visually telling the story. It's how the characters are performing the story. It is absolutely stunning. What do you want to say? Well, I did, to add to kind of 
yeah, spoiling it without spoiling it. Once the moment happens that audiences want to happen, the credits don't jump in immediately. There is a moment, and and it, this is where the title comes into play, as far as the father, the mother, and the daughter, and and you have that moment. So, if you're asking when it's all said done, hey, why is this called the Virgin Spring? Stick with it. Stick with it once you've cheered and you know raised your beer bottle in the air at the movie theater or at home. And, uh, and there's there's more to it. There, there's still a prologue that happens that's just... And this is one of those films that I've always said, and, and like the other one we're going to talk to, don't watch this film and then go to sleep. Austin, you didn't do that, did you? Did you watch Archer or Bob's Burgers before you went to sleep? No, you know what? I, I, t- I text you right after the rape scene yeah. when the farmers got to the farm... Or when the uh, herders got to the farmhouse. And I said, dude, this movie's fucked up. And you said to me... <laughs> You need to go get some ice cream. As soon as it's over, get some ice cream and turn on Office Space. That was Did your you? <laughs> Did you? No, I, I think I ended up putting on like professional wrestling or something. <laughs> but um, still, I had okay. some ice cream. That's... I had some ice cream, watched some wrestling, and felt. What was good. your flavor? What was uh, your flavor? Actually, it was a Snickers ice cream bar. Oh, that's um, that's kind of nice. Is, yeah. is it current wrestling or, or old wrestling? Because I'm an old fart. It, it, it was it was it was current. I had to get caught up, so I was doing my my Bye. due diligence to get caught up. However, um, I will say that I did watch Through a Glass Darkly and went straight to bed. So we can talk about that when oh, we get Jesus. there. Jesus, Primity, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Don't do that. Jesus. Oh my God! Oh, man. The, uh, the the whole point about the Virgin Spring is it's really simple. There's I don't feel like. I mean, we could really dig deep, but I don't think I, I can't stress enough how much I feel like this is for Bergman really accessible to a, a, yeah. a modern audience because of the because I feel like it feels way ahead of its time and uh, it's short. It's like 90 minutes. It's like yeah. super short. It looks beautiful. It's really intense. And I mean, this for me, this is like a five star movie, dude. This is like. So perfect from beginning to end, just like the simplest of Hitchcock movies where you get like rope, you know, rope is so simple. It is so simple. And he just strings you along through a series of scenes that lead you where you need to go. And it's the execution. It's the, it's the feel of a one take. It's the, you know, these guys trying to toy. How are they, or the Columbo effect. How are they going to get caught? Yes. Who's, how are they going to get and and I, and I think this film we I mentioned on the last show you know the, the two the two films that we watched are Bergman 101. This is probably the next phase. I, w- I would say Virgin Spring more. Um, this this is easier to watch than Persona and Seventh Seal. I would say if you if you and if you want to take a step into Persona Seventh Seal you, territory, you probably might start with uh, Through a Glass Darkly. That might be true. Yeah, we're gonna get to it in a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's let's go ahead and move on and get to it now. We're gonna take a quick break, okay. and we can always call back to the Virgin Spring if we need to say something else. I'm gonna go ahead and Good take Lord. a quick break, though. We're gonna hop on over to Through a Glass Darkly, which is the second Bergman film we're gonna be talking about during our Ingmar Bergman Cinema Marathon. Matthew, stick with us, listeners. We'll be right back.
All right, everybody, we are here to talk about Through a Glass Darkly from 1961, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, starring Harriet Anderson, uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand, or, uh, Bjornstrand, who's awesome, by the way. Uh, you yes. know, we've, we've already talked about him a few times uh, in other movies, and Max von Sydow, of course. Um, release date, October 16th, 1961, in Sweden. Didn't get here till March 13th, 1962. Winner of the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film that year. This film won Sweden its second consecutive uh, Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. The previous winner, yeah. uh, of course, was The Virgin Spring, which we just talked about. This film has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes for anybody who cares. And, you know, it was in Roger Ebert's great so movies. It's the Paddington 2 of Bergman <laughs> films is what you're saying. <laughs> Hi, hey, Evan. I uh, had yeah, to do that. Don't shit on Paddington 2. I'm right? not shitting on Paddington 2. We own it too. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I gently make fun of Rotten Tomatoes because it's a national, it's a it's a group consensus. Yeah. And that group doesn't live in my house. So. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't really but care no, about Rotten I, Tomatoes. But, <laughs> but it's like, it, 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 Surprise, and also real quick with movies like this, there's always like seven people that watched it, and it has a hundred percent. So, <laughs> right, it's, it's it's not the Yelp, it's not the Yelp probably. I don't understand this. It's in black and white. It's Swedish. One star, but it looks good. One star, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. That's a, yeah Yelp thing. Yeah. So, Through a Glass Darkly is part of a thematic trilogy by Bergman, along with Winter Light and The Silence, which I'm going to watch at some point. And it tells the story. And available on Criterion, separate from the giant Ingmar Bergman box set, if you're inclined. Absolutely, there is a trilogy box set that you can uh, buy. They're they're just thematic, uh, you know, companions. And uh, you know, Through a Glass Darkly tells the story of another Karin. Woo, we're getting. Uh, yeah. He loves this name. <laughs> A schizophrenic young woman, played by Harriet Anderson, vacationing with her family on a remote island. Uh, we'll talk about the island probably at some point. During which yes. time she experiences delusions about meeting God, who ultimately appears to her in the form of a monstrous spider. Meanwhile, her author father attempts to use her illness in his work, and her brother struggles with intense sexual frustration. The story takes place during a 24-hour period while four family members attempt to enjoy their island vacation, but shortly after it begins, Karin falls into a downward spiral, to say the least. Karin's husband, Martin, played by Max von Sydow, is a respected doctor and tells Karin's father, David, played by Bjornstrand, uh, that Karin's disease is almost incurable. Meanwhile, Minus, who is Karin's 17-year-old brother, tells brother. Karin that he wishes he could have a real conversation with his father and feels deprived of his father's affection. And then David, the father, is a novelist suffering from writer's block who has just returned from a long trip abroad uh, but got little work done. There are only four characters in the film, but each character has a struggle. Minus with his desire for patriarchal attention and the empty void in his life that is female intimacy. Uh, David with his conflict about, you know, using his daughter's illness to overcome his writer's block. Michael with, uh, you know, always trying to grasp his partner's unpredictable psyche and always turning to medicine, refusing God, which is important. And most importantly, Karin and her illness uh, that essentially takes over the film. And not only narratively, but the look of the film seems to convey Karin's point of view. The sets are empty, dark, lonely, even haunting. The walls in each room trapping her in the frame like a prison. Thanks 
you know, largely to the great cinematographer we brought up before, Sven Nickvist. Uh, you know, this movie looks incredible. So, Matthew, I'm going to set you up here. Why did you choose Through a Glass Darkly as one of the seven that we're covering for the Ingmar Bergman Cinema Marathon? Why do you connect with this film? Well, first off, Austin, with your description, you've, you've, you've won the suburban crowd with that pitch. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the rosés are going to go flat as you're, as you're drinking those in your outhouse theater. I, I, uh, when I did the list for you, I, I wanted to cover different aspects of Bergman's career, but also the stories that he told. And we we kind of covered that in the, you know, the, the romp that is the Virgin Spring. But Through a Glass Darkly, which we've mentioned is a part of a trilogy that is available separately through Criterion. Again, they didn't send it to me for free. I paid for it. But it's also with Winter Light and the Silence. And... Uh, Bergman's got a history with religion. His father was a person of the cloth. And, and I think what he learned from his father is what to do and what not to do when it came to religion and spirituality. And there's, that's two different things. Yeah. And, uh, and I think we covered this in Through a Glass Darkly as far as these four people. By the way, this is a Bravo series waiting to happen. That's, this is a Thanksgiving special we all want to see. <laughs> As far as everybody who everybody's got their own problem and man, their own problems are going to go head to head in, in some cases deeper than others with some. But uh, so so I think the fact that uh, that the uh, Harriet Anderson character, the fact that Corrine sees God, has conversations with God and then sees God through a spider. I'm sure John Peters will, and Kevin Smith will enjoy that. <laughs> that uh, look it up. He tells the story. Kevin Smith tells the story uh, for you fans of Wild Wild West. But um, yeah, it, it's it, it, it tackles religion from a, an aspect that probably 60 years ago would be deemed blasphemous, but nowadays would probably be a lot more acceptable. And and not just that, but also what Kareen's character goes through. Maybe not so much what she goes through with her brother, but uh, but as far as her schizophrenia and and the meltdown that she has, the fact that mental illness has become more open and uh, it's more acceptable and more understood, as opposed to it's not the end of uh, a streetcar named Desire, where the guys in the white and well, to a certain degree, the guys in the white coat show up here, but uh, but we, there's a more sympathetic look at at Kareen's character this time around. Yeah, th dude, this movie, you, I think you nailed it earlier. This is something that I had in my notes. You know, like The Virgin Spring, if you're going to watch, uh, you know, uh, any of the 1960 prior movies, you know, you have something like uh, Smiles of a Summer Night or Wild Strawberries, but I think for a certain person, The Virgin Spring would be a great place to start, like half my friends, because we're all terrible humans, apparently. And um, <laughs> No, you're and, fine. <laughs> Uh, but this film is your introduction to Bergman as we see in Persona and uh, Hour of the Wolf and all of those kind of the slow burn, gorgeous, gets fucked up movies, right? Like th those, that level of Bergman. That's, I love that section of the video story, the gorgeous fucked up. Take me to the gorgeous fucked up section. Well, it's right down here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because that's what it is, man. And this is, uh, I feel like this is the most you know, for someone first getting into Bergman, this is probably the most digestible that I've seen of this type of Bergman. 
Um, so I, I love that you said that. I, I want to touch on something interesting, and you'll probably have uh, you might have more to add uh, than I have here. But this is the first Ingmar Bergman film to be made on the island of Pharaoh. I'm assuming Pharaoh that's how you say Island. It. Yes, Pharaoh that's Island. His, that's his place, yep. man. Bergman it's- would uh, later buy a home on the island, and I believe you know he made something like six films and a television series or something. Yeah. Uh, so it's funny that I, it's funny. I, I, here's, here's your pledge dollars at work NPR fans. Um, I just finished a box set of the films of uh, Wisconsin filmmaker, Bill Rabane. Shout out to arrow video, but you know, there was, there was a, and also with wrestling, like, like professional wrestling. When I was a kid, there was the regional filmmakers. You had George Romero in Pittsburgh. You had Bill Rabane in Wisconsin. Well, damn, Ingmar got his own Island. And, yeah. and started shooting movies there because he didn't have to deal with people. He didn't have to deal with backers. He could work in his own little bubble, make the movies he wanted to make. And they were and they were quite well, I might add. Yeah, it, and make those and throw them out there to you. So, you know, we should all be so lucky. And I guess that's what we're doing with the podcast. That this is our little island and we do what we want. <laughs> Uh, but this was at a much larger scale with uh, with with Bergman shooting on an island. You know, uh, first off, I'm using that from now on. This is my little island, and I can do whatever I want. This is your this is your Faroe <laughs> Island. Now tell Leif Ullman to call me. I, <laughs> I know. I'm changing. Anderson. I'm changing the podcast name to My Faroe Island. Um, That's but anyways, not bad, man. <laughs> but no, he was actually originally going to shoot on a different island, uh, but it was too expensive. And Nick Vist was like, yo, yo, there's this other place. Just go look at it. And Bergman's like, man, I don't want to. I want to go to this place. And he's like, just come with me. He's like, just come with me. And so he goes and first moment he's there, falls in love with this place. And dude, this has such a, this is like John Ford's Monument Valley, right? Like it has such a unique, unique look uh, that, man, just, just the way that the, the, the water hits the rocky beaches or however you want to say it, you know, dude, it is an awesome place. And just like I've mentioned before with, with Bergman and his crew, you know, he has his, he had his regular crew. He had his regular troop of actors. If he knows the, if he knows his locations and he knows this time of year, this time of day, this time of weather, that it's going to be that way. You're not stranded there losing hundreds of thousands of dollars with an eyepiece, you know, cause the cloud, you know, cause my nature and the clouds aren't doing what you want. Um, I.e. You know, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> uh, sure, that, you know, I, aside, an aside. This is one of my favorite things to, to to mention. What my quite possibly my favorite CGI moment in cinema is when I heard that Ang Lee was making the film Sense and Sensibility, and he wanted more clouds. Mm-hmm. Fuck monsters. Fuck cars jumping from one building to another. Like, nah, put a couple clouds up there and they'll yep. be fine. Darren, Darren Aronofsky in The Fountain did the same yeah. thing with the, with the fluttering little flowers at the end. Yep. yep. I love yep. that shit, dude. You, I'll eat it's that hard to find day. trained butterflies, man. It's hard to find trained insects. <laughs> They're not, they all don't go to Juilliard. I know. <laughs> well, I just want, I want to, I want to kind of start with this too. The title comes from 1 Corinthians 13 12, getting back into the religious thing, which this movie is yeah. just rife with. And the King James Version says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Uh, Basically, for now we see only a reflection as if in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but shall know fully, 
even as I am fully known. Uh, you know, we can talk about, you know, theology all day, but the point is, when you when you hear this, when I first read this, because I knew it came, but I hadn't read the scripture. I knew it came from the Bible. Right. But man, when I read it, I was like, shit, this is such an awesome name for this movie. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, because... Oh man, we again. I'm trying not to just like break down and get into like theological conversation, but okay. this is like a perfect, a perfect thing. This whole idea of like, but then face to face, she's face to face with God in her mind. Now I see in part, but then I see fully, and then she is fully exposed. Which at the end, she's fully exposed. But it's like yep. the opposite of what the scripture means. Because if you read the context, Correct. it's like this positive thing. But, like, <laughs> in the movie, it's a bummer, dude. <laughs> yeah, man. Don't go in. I mean, I, I love Harry and Anderson. I love looking at Harry and Anderson. You're not going to get jollies out of this, gang. I'm sorry. And she, she, she's great in this. She, she is, is great. This, this might be her best work. I, I, again, I don't do lists. But the fact that you have folks like Harry Anderson and, and Lee Volman and B.B. Anderson, Max von Sydow and, you know, and the rest of the gang, you know, the, the, the uh, again, I wish Bravo had done a Thanksgiving special on the Ingmar Bergman players. I would rather watch that or the or the for you English fans, the Red, the uh, Redgrave Richardsons. I would love to see that Thanksgiving special more than any other spirit, uh, any other special on uh, uh, holiday season. Man, she's so good. She has this makeup on that. That makes her look sickly the entire movie. Like she, she, she reminds me of if you're a fan of of uh, Lars von Trier, Charlotte Gainsbourg, the, the woman that's just absolutely put through the ringer with a capital W. And you know, it's that as as a film nerd, you're watching, going, "Are you all right?" But yeah. she's a pro. But you're like, "Are you are you okay?" Would you like some tea? It feels like you've just been dragged through broken glass and hell combined. Are you doing okay? And and 99% of the time, uh, they'll say, yeah, I'm all right. I'm a pro. Yeah, dude. So good at this. She's so good. And do, do you, like, how do you feel about the performances across the board? Because I feel like everyone did really well. I mean, everyone, she stands I mean, out, of course. Of us, this is a great quartet. This again, this is this is not a Friday night of uh, musical romping before going in. Yeah, this is like a chamber piece. You know what I mean? <laughs> a, a Mahler chamber piece, I guess. So, <laughs> um, yeah, because I'm trying to remember what else. Uh, minus the brother played by Lars Pinnegard. I'm now checking my notes. Sorry. And, and uh, this was Gunnar his first. Was, this was his debut. So he was like was an his amateur. First. Yeah. Nah, hey, that's not bad. And and the thing is, is and for an amateur is from a director standpoint, what you can get out of that person, yeah. as opposed to you know they may not be classically trained, but if they have instinct and the and emotion, and you're able to pull it in the right direction, there's something to be said about that. Gunnar Borgen, we've seen many times, and the fact that he's just cold in this, and it's like the dad in Long Day's Journey into Night. And 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 Von Sydow, he's always solid. I, I mean, this it's. I think it's not as great a performance as The Virgin Spring, but as I've said before, ninety percent of acting is reacting. And if you're bouncing off Harriet Anderson, you're doing you're doing fine. Yeah, and The Virgin Spring is just written for him to be just a just a showcase. Flail you know himself. I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just. I mean, who's gonna beat that? I don't know if there is a better performance by him. But but like in this, like the scene between. Bjornstrand and Seedow in the boat where Seedow yeah. confronts Bjornstrand about, yo, you're taking advantage of your daughter. 
you know, mm-hmm. and you're being, and they're straight up, it's just like wild strawberries whenever they're in the car driving and they're both being brutally honest with one another. This yeah. is them on a boat just being like, you're being a fucking dick. You need to stop being an asshole. And the other guy's like, well, I'm just doing it because of this, but you're going to be an asshole too. Only <laughs> in Swedish and better written. But yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. and, and every every son and every dad is going to respond strongly in that moment. Yeah, it's yeah they're they're fantastic and and uh, and Minus the 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 freshman actor in this he unfortunately he's gonna get just be the worst because everyone else is great but he's still great I thought he did a really that, good job in Bergman could, yeah, I was gonna say Bergman got him to go toe to toe yeah if you, I'm sorry if you if you can step up and play I mean you know and and this is an analogy if you play tennis or you spar with somebody who's better than you you're gonna get better and the fact he got to spar with Max von Sydow and and Jord Bergson and and Harry and Anderson that's pretty good and and didn't look like a schlub yeah and, and it's, a, it's a hard role because it's the little brother and you know here's a he's trying to be spiritual and look at pornography that's a whole different type of person we're not going to get into right now but um but he also has the great last line. I don't, I don't want to give it away, but his last line in the film reminds me of, have you seen Todd Solondons' Happiness? Yeah, that's, I, I have it, it on the shelf back the, there, dude. It reminds me of the kid who says, I came. Yeah. It's it's sort of like that, where he's blissful, but for all the wrong reasons Yeah, in that final moment. But no, and, and there's... Um, with, again, I'm going to word this carefully about giving it. There's a brother sister moment that nobody needs. And it's hard. It's <laughs> virgin spring difficult. Dude. And that, yeah, that, on top of religion, you got that moment that we just alluded to that we didn't want to spoil. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I'm going to let people find out. I'll just say there is a, a brother sister moment that just makes you kind of go, whoa. Like it kind of, um, it kind of it came out of nowhere for me. No pun intended. Um, but <clears throat> dude, it, it doesn't help the bummer factor of this movie though. That <laughs> the Bummersville, yeah, <laughs> Bummersville Chamber of Commerce, yeah, that <laughs> ran by Ingmar Bergman. I just said that name weird, Ingmar Bergman. But anyways, dude, he uses Box Cello Suite Number Two. Go yeah. go listen to that song and tell me that just listening to it, you're not put into a point where you just need a beer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you yeah. won't and as well as you won't think of that song the same way ever again. There there's certain we, we we have a and I'm sure there's a list out there on the internet, you know, of of songs that have been forever immortalized in cinema. You know, the three times uh Scorsese used Gimme Shelter and you know, Clockwork Orange and Singing in the Rain. Yeah, Bach and uh, Bach and <laughs> Through a Glass Darkly. You're like, oh man, yeah. It's just, it, it's a man. What a, it's not even melancholy. It's, it's just a dark song. Uh, I mean, yeah. dude, these cellos are getting down, and it's just so, <laughs> it's subtle, but it's like. Emoting. Hans Zimmer is, is jealous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, but it's the simplicity of it, dude. It's like two cellos yeah. playing this thing, and it's incredible for the moments. He hits it perfectly, dude. He knows when to put music. He knows when not to. Just like he did yep. in the Virgin Springs, same thing. Uh, I was, Correct. dude. And and this is a movie where when you hear those thick cellos kick in, they stand out. Like you notice yeah. them. You know, unlike other. Like I don't remember any music from the Virgin Spring. I know it existed. But I don't remember right. any of it. This clearly, there's like 
a thing. <laughs> you know, like like there, this there has music. to be a Berg, there has to be a Bergman box set out there somewhere. I'm cool. sure. And if it is, send us a note, and we will we will talk about it. Yeah, but, yeah. Medium yeah. cool, uh, medium cool pod. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. <laughs> you know, yeah. another shameless self promotion there. But you know, like when 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 you watch a movie like this, these these types of Bergman, specifically this one, because it's what we're talking about here. But what what themes jump out to you though? Because I have a few written down, but I don't mean to put you on the spot if I am. But like, no, no, what, no, what no, are fine. some things that hop out to you, man? First first off, watch it on Sundays. Um, this this is what you watch before brunch. But I but I think um, her illusions of God. The relationship she has with all the men in her life, her father, her husband, and her brother. Um, it's funny. I just I just got back from Michigan and and had a vacation to see my family. Not nothing like this, gang. Nothing like this at all. <laughs> but but as far as the chemistry you have with the people in your life and the history you have with the people in your life. And hell, man, certain certain pieces of music. Think you you think about the people in your life, and uh, and I think what Bergman does with this between her breakdown, and it's not just because of the the scene, the sibling scene we we're talking to, you know, a spider does come in the play, and uh, so there's that, and what the father has done, and and I'm I'm a father of fifty one year. Well, I'm I'm a fifty one year old father, I should say. Um, you know, what's, what's going the relationship between my daughter and I, as she gets older is going to change. And, and I, and I don't know, and you know, I, I don't want it to be the relationship that I, that this father has with either one of his kids, but that's going to change and evolve over time. So, and, and as a husband, I hope I have a better relationship with my wife than what happens in this one. Um, I think if, and, and I, I don't recommend watching this as a double bill, but if you want wives that are, you know, having a nervous breakdown, you know, the other one with this is John Cassavetes, a woman of the influence. Oh yeah. Not nearly yeah. as religious, but just as emotional and then yeah. have tons yeah. of ice cream afterwards. <laughs> well, that's, that's like my favorite Cassavetes. So I'll take that any day. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, that's, I, uh, that's I tough... keep trying to talk my family into Cassavetes and they're like, that's not a fun night. And I'm like, come on. Dude, we already, we already did a Cassavetes marathon, dude. I was, I was double featuring that shit. I, I love Cassavetes. Did you know, did you know, this is, this was last week and I kept hyping this on, I'm sorry, on my show, film sociology, WFYI.org, but the skyline drive-in in Shelbyville showed the killing of a Chinese bookie at a drive-in. I was so damn jealous. I was in Michigan on vacation and the fact that somebody had the balls to put on a John Cassavetes film of any kind, it could have been Gloria or Big Trouble or Opening Night. But the fact that you put on a Cassavetes film on a drive-in, I was more than impressed. And the biggest, probably the biggest flop he had. Like, like you're putting on the darkest, like, <laughs> you know, like just, and it's it's like double billed with like a teen comedy or something. Yeah, I still don't know why that happened. I wish I could find out, but it's gonna be a weird odd little footnote in my head but kudos to you because oh, yeah. it's that <laughs> i'm not in marketing friends it's that kind of oh we're gonna put these because normally at the drive-in and now i'm going off on a side side tangent okay. as as a kid as my age it didn't the the two films the second feature didn't have to be new 
you could you could lump it with something from the studio or something of a similar genre and it would fit. And so when I when I do the drive-in postings at the tip and the skyline, <coughs> sorry, I, I tend to find out what's the what's the connection. Like, oh, one for him, one for her, two R-rated action movies, two horror films, blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, the fact that you had the killing of a Chinese bookie and this kind of horny teen comedy, like, I, I want to know, first off, I like to have the herb that you were having as you were booking this, but um, I, I wish I could have been there. And I wish there were more people that would take a chance on life. But unfortunately, in 2021, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a guaranteed big night of bucks. But uh, but kudos to them for chutzpah. Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I think more cats of Chinese books should be in drive-in. So there. Oh, for sure, dude. And the killing of a Chinese booking and cutting class. That's the movie. I just looked it up because I couldn't remember. Lord. Cutting class. That's so good. Dude. So anyway, and by the way, more Bergman at a drive-in movie. There you go. So I, I still want my art house drive-in movies. So same, same lower class low level of food. You can get hot dogs and nachos and popcorn, but you're watching playing chess with death on a giant screen. That's going to be a swap meet on Saturday morning. <laughs> <coughs> you're killing this is why me. I'm not a business major. That's super funny, man. Dude, I, I, I'm just I'm I'm pulling this back on the road here because the, okay. you know you you brought up the themes that stick out to you, and again I've talked about my history with the church, and I've talked about yes. um, all these things, uh, all the things related to you know God and and religion, all these, and dude, I mean clearly Bergman is exploring his past trauma apparently. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> his, well, his, and there's. Uh, there's- if, if you don't mind me asking, have you seen Fanny and Alexander? I have not seen the last three we're covering yet. I will watch them for the episode. Okay. Yeah. Because there, that's another one where uh, a person of the cloth is involved and a young child. And I wonder, you know, I, 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 I unless you're up for such light reading, I, I wouldn't recommend looking into the spiritual history of Ingmar Bergman. But, but there's also that aspect of it that, uh, and not everything is, 100% concrete friends as to, oh, what happened to this film happened to Bergman in real life. We, You chip and you shape and you mold to what you need to do to tell the story. It's yeah. not as yeah. simple as, oh, I have a friend. Let's call him Cliff. It's it's not it's not that <laughs> simple. It's, it's a lot more than that if you're a good enough artist, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. It, well, uh, it's super clear because this... Uh, for all the things you brought up and the themes that you pull out that kind of stand out to you, thinking of your family and, and all of those, for me, watching this, I'm just thinking constantly, especially once you get to about the halfway point, I'm just like, God's all over this in terms of how yeah. they're looking at God. And and what what I took away from it is is we, we get this loss of innocence, right? She's coming, she's mm-hmm. come from this uh, this as they put it in everything I read an insane asylum. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd call it that, but she came from from a, a hospital or, or a facility, uh, and they went on this this uh, vacation to kind of help her get away, and so they could all be together right? finally because they've all been apart. And man, like her slow decline, just the level to which she starts to break down, and and the sibling thing, and and all of these aspects just really start to break down this innocence that she kind of conveys at the begin at the top of the film. And we again we get this with like every Bergman film, like someone's well, gonna lose their innocence at some point. 
But I, the question I was left with at the end of this is, where is God? And and Virgin Spring is they almost blatantly ask yeah. that question. Uh, I'm pretty sure Seedow actually asks it. But you know, she sees she has this vision of this God that's behind the wallpaper, right? And finally, this yeah. this storm brings this door open, and she sees God, right? And then. You know, once her her uh, once she's been um, sedated, basically, you know, and she calms down, and I'm just watching her face and how she's responding, and I'm just like in my in my mind, I just imagine in her head, where is God? I've seen yeah. the face of God, and it was not what I've been taught my whole life. So where is where is the God I was taught about? You know, which yeah. I can, of course, relate to to an extent. I never had anything close to either one of these movies ever. But but the the general idea of questioning those things, yeah. um, I found really powerful. And one last thing, <clears throat> excuse me, one last thing before I pass it over to you. The Where Is God sure. starts early, where when she yeah. first goes into her dad's uh, like um, room, basically wh- wherever they are, and and reads a diary. Um, but pro- like before and after that, she's just she'll just break into sobs, and she's not only is her performance incredible in these scenes. I mean, yep. it's so it's so moving. But I just in every cry, I just still had that question pop up in my head: Where is God in this? Because clearly they're talking about God at times, and you know she's praying and she wants to see God, and she hears this voice behind the wallpaper and all of those things. Um, but the, the, the concept of where is God through all of this shit that I'm going through, you know what I mean? And then whenever I finally get that answer, I'm not happy with that answer, right? I mean, man, that's, I just think that is a powerful thing that really pulled me through the whole film. I bet you were fun on Sunday mornings. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, that, just, and I just showed this film to the church every Sunday. No, and, and that's kind of it. First off, it I think as you watch this, you start to question, when did we each lose our own innocence? And it, it doesn't have to be as, as harsh as this film or The Virgin Spring. Um, everybody has their own path with God, whether they take one or not. And what is your history with that? It's not the same. Th- Yours is not the same as mine. It's not the same as our parents. And that that's always a fun conversation to have. Yeah. Um, Thanksgiving's uh, are fun. Yes, yes. <laughs> and all, all the bad, yeah, all of the histories are fun. And but I think it's but I think what's great about this film is, and I wish I could say show it to your families because then you could watch. It's like it's like Hamlet showing uh claudius to play within the play within the play because you watch see how they respond because everyone's gonna have a different response to this film just like everybody has their own different response to their pathway with god um you know it, even something as simple as and and i know this is an old question of you know why why is there so much suffering on the earth when you know if god is exists and and, you know, what if it's somebody who, you know, it, why do you have to build character on this one? Or what if this person doesn't believe in that and they're a good person and have to suffer for it? So, I mean, all of these great questions and a lot of gray area. You know, I, I was an altar boy for over nine years in the Catholic Church. I did not wear a gray frock. It was black and it was white. <laughs> so, 
Uh, so I think those questions on top of the mental illness that, that, uh, that Harriet Anderson's character goes through, that Kareem go through, goes through, as well as the relations and how they handle it. I think it's, it's again, it's not a great conversation maker, but man, it'll, it'll poke the hornet's nest in everybody's mind. Yeah, especially in your household, if you watch it. Yeah, and and uh, you know, I, I forgot to make a note of this, but you just reminded me, like her her dealing with mental illness in this, I, dude. I again, that's a really easy thing to exploit, right? Like, is yeah, to you, use... you you throw them in a padded room, you put you put the 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 straight jacket on them, which was very melodramatic in the 1950s in film, and uh, you know, and this one she's literally wielded away in a helicopter and and taken away, but. Uh, yeah, it, it was that it, it was either you were either funny, you were either funny, crazy or you're tragic, crazy. There was no in between. Yeah. And, and what's also interesting is a lot of those movies either were much quicker paced uh, to keep your interest, yep. which a lot of movies are, uh, or, or there was a companion <laughs> that was with you. That was the every man to your crazy. And and this is like, no, we're just going to follow her. And we're just going to take our time. And dude, like I mentioned, the set design, like every room looks fucked up. Like, and, and, I, and I don't nice know. Nice way to go, realtor. I know. <laughs> I like the, uh, I like the Swedish lakes, island side cabin with every, with, with all the fucked up rooms. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Wait, I, is I, that a spider up there? We'll take it. We'll yeah, take it. Yeah. I don't know if it's like, I don't know if I should be, uh, you know, giving this to to Bergman or Nick Vist or or the, uh, it's just there's something about it because you know Nick Vist is clearly using these like wide angle uh, lenses, but he's using a lot of times you'll use them at head height. He's right. using them at like sternum height, so everything looks weird. Like I just noticed that as I'm watching, it's like at like this midpoint at mid wall, so everything's like above you and like circling around. There's a point where they're in the the uh, de- the uh, landlocked ship, the destroyed yeah. ship. Yes, and, yeah, that's where that's she, where the family moment comes yeah, in. Yeah, 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 fun for the whole family. And she uh, puts her hands up on and holds this board, and behind her, because the ship is literally mangled, it like yep. is like this weird, bizarre frame within a frame within a frame around her. It's, Dude, yeah, it's almost like the uh, the the uh, the stairwell scene in Vertigo. Yeah. If you need a forced perspective, so we we need Chip and Joanna Gaines to do Fixer Upper Sweden edition, <laughs> Sweden edition, dude. But yeah, like this is classic Bergman cinematography for the first time in my watching all of these chronologically, and I haven't seen every film up to this point. You know, I only watched the early Bergman stuff and the stuff that we've talked about, and I've seen Seventh Seal, of course, and and a few others, but. Out of all of them, this is the first point where when I think of Bergman's visuals, and of course I think of those really super visual movies like Persona and Hour of the Wolf and that kind of mid-tier of, you know, even I haven't seen Cries and Whispers yet, but I I know the look of that film. Yeah, these are the films that grab you by the lapels and just kind of shake you in a good cinematic way. Yeah, not by the taint this time, just the lapels. And, <laughs> I just uh, <laughs> rattle your taint, not shake your taint. There's a okay. subtle difference. There is friends. a subtle difference. Sorry, no, 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 that... Film critics terminology right here. <laughs> we, nobody rattle. wants a tito meter. That's, no, still... <laughs> that's ridiculous. But no, like it, it, 
you've you saw the whole box set. I haven't watched all of it yet. Yeah. It, it, would you say this is around the first time where he gets that super Bergman feel? You understand <laughs> what I mean by that? It's super Bergman. <laughs> I'm going to make you question God and all existence. Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's the, the, the 50s stuff. And I think, you know, after like now we're doing a little Bergman history. After the sex, success of Smiles on a Summer Night, there was that kind of thing. You know, you kind of got a lot of filmmakers did when they got their first big hit. You kind of got a blank check. And, and Bergman made the seventh seal. Man, he pushed all his chips on the table and went, I'm going to play chess with death. Yep. And just start going down that path and uh, and never really looked back, nope. which I think is is absolutely admirable. I think that's why he also got the island, that whole, you know, screw you, I'm going to shoot this here. And this was also a time when filmmakers like him and Fellini and Kurosawa and, and Godard, where their releases were an event. And sometimes they were a hit and sometimes they weren't, but you, you kept going on back to it. And I, that sounds like the auteur theory. Sorry, Chris Lloyd. But uh, but uh, but I, I was on board for that. So the fact that he was able to. But yeah, I think getting, when, he, when he came out of the out of the phone booth with his SB on his chest for <laughs> Super Bergman. Yeah, I think I think he really took flight with this. Wow. Real, real quick aside. Should I be talking to Chris Lloyd about auteur theory? Is this something I should bring up? Oh, see, I don't. I, I, I've already poked a hornet's nest. So I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm not so much the auteur theory guy, but I'm a big auteur guy, kind of in general. Am I going to fight with him? I don't know, but can I have popcorn while he, he I literally watch? just messaged me? It popped up. He, it's like he's listening to us speak right now. Is he really? Yeah, he did. Um, <laughs> I'm working out of time for him to no, come on. No, I, 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 one of the great compliments is, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I, for, I forget when this is running, but um, the week he posted his review of the Angie Dickinson film, Big Bad Mama, he goes, yeah. I'm going with, by the way, 1970s Angie Dickinson, um, I'm down for it. But he, but he said, I, I'm going into Matthew Sosi territory. So I was very touched that, you know, uh, hot, hot aging babe gangster films is 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 what he thinks about with me. And I'm, I'm happy about that. So <laughs> oh this my is gosh. before she got the avocado campaign. So I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, through a glass darkly, we've we've talked quite a bit about it there. I mean, there's there's a lot here. Again, this is this is Bergman you know, the early art film territory. Of course he did seven seal prior, but I mean, you're yeah. really getting into a lot of subtext here. You're really, I mean, there's a clear narrative, but there's a lot going on under the surface. I love that you keep talking about gray area because that's just where I reside. That's my favorite media of any kind. I love gray area because yeah. that's reality. And so, uh, I guess I didn't think of Bergman so much as the gray area guy, but there's a lot of that here in both of these, as well as uh, some of the films we've watched. And uh, if, again, if you mentioned we've mentioned Winterlight and The Silence, I, I don't recommend watching those three together. Uh, you know, watch one and watch Office Space and watch something else and something goofy. But uh, but yeah, this this is this is a fun trilogy for Sunday brunch. Oh my gosh. We, you know, we, you and I are so different about this. Do you get particular, this is an aside to finish out here. Yeah. Do you get particularly affected 
by sad movies like this? Do you actually have an emotional reaction that changes your mood for the day? Or do you just like to tease me because I like to go to Bummerville all the time? No, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I enjoy certain neighborhoods of Bummerville. I'm with you on that. Um, let's see. Uh, there was there was a period in my life that I could watch anything at any time, regardless of the emotional state I was in. And I was I was 22 when my mother died. And there were there were three films that she absolutely loved that I could not watch for a long time afterwards. Sure. Driving Miss Daisy, Steel Magnolias and Terms of Endearment. My mother died of cancer. So I think the fact that those those connections had that, especially two of the films, because we had daughters dying. Yeah. Um, and, and so I was like, OK, I can't. And it took me a long time to revisit those films. I love those films. I could quote those films, especially Steel Magnolias, more than any straight white dude probably should. But I can. Um, there was that. And, and then the other great moment is father father nerd father film nerd um i could watch anything by the way friends if you have a child and evan if you're listening i know you are um the first year of a child's life you can watch anything you want they're not gonna remember my daughter's 19 she still has yet to bring up watching the wild punch with me when she was six months old um but there was that moment where I, and for me whatever's at the top of my video list i'm watching and then there was one day at our old house where I'm in the I'm in the living room watching a movie because it was at the top of my list. I see my daughter who's about a year and a half, two years old. She's in the kitchen, but she's in her little play circle. So yeah. I can see her. She's yeah. fine. She's playing. And my wife, my lovely wife, Lynn, the one who lets me call her Mrs. Sosie on the radio, comes in and here's what I'm watching. And it's the uh, holy water scene in The Exorcist. <laughs> and she storms into the kitchen, grabs Emma, and s storms upstairs during the whole, it burns, it burns. Arr! And I, I saw her. I went, okay, okay, I'll start watching what I'm watching when she's awake. So I was at one time that I, I can watch anything at any time. Nowadays, at 51 and, and with a 19-year-old and married for 22 years, I've also, also also the fact that I have movies sent to me. So I'm like, okay, I'd, I'd love to watch this freely, but I have a documentary about the history of punk music or I have the, you know, uh, the Bill Rabane Wisconsin series to go through. So what is sent to me kind of dictates what I need to watch. And then I can watch whatever I like freely. And sure. then there's... Is my wife there? Is my daughter there? They're not going to want to watch Bergman or Blackula or <laughs> whatever Hammer because I've already made them do that. So anyway, there's there's a madness to my method. I'm sure your household's the same way. Here's here's a subject matter for you. Um, when when the family goes away, as as a film guy, you tend to pick your deepest darkest weirdest shit and i remember when my wife and daughter were away for five days and that was the couple of days i rented both parts of lars von trier's nymphomaniac <laughs> right because you don't want to explain that at home yeah you went through it and went 
good lord. No, that's a I'm really good. That's a really good choice to do alone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, I saw it the year it came out, and I did like a top ten that year. So I was watching. I was doing the critic thing. I was doing like watching a billion movies at the end of the year. And yeah. I, I watched that double feature back to back one day in an afternoon yep. by myself Hard. in my house, <laughs> like four hours, you know, and I love Von Trier. Of course, I'm a big bummer guy, but man, that, that movie, I'll, I mean, I'll just say I, I abhor the last two minutes of the second part, but I love everything else. And, uh, that, but that's a, I, I get you, man. That, that's one that you, you watch by yourself. I'll tell you this. Cause we just had a father's day episode, uh, two weeks ago, and I had my, my dad on, and I asked him to pick as many films as he wanted, just movies that changed his life in some way. And he mm-hmm. chose a whole bunch of movies. You know, Michael Keaton in My Life, 1993. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, he was choosing Philadelphia, which we didn't talk about on air, but that was one that was on the list. And, you know, he mm-hmm. had uh, a series of them, but one of them was Saving Private Ryan. And, uh, yeah. I told the story on air, and I'll just tell you very briefly again because I think it's funny. That's oh, okay. I told my I told my dad that uh, I was like, yeah, I remember one time he was gonna. My parents were split up, and my dad was about to take me back to my mom's. We had about fifteen twenty minutes before we needed to leave, and so he was like, hey, actually, you got you got to see the first like. 10, 15 minutes of this movie. So my oh, dad good just, Lord. my dad just, good Lord. the first like hey, 12 and, and minutes. You know what? Let's cleanse our palate with the wild bunch. <laughs> he put on the first 12 minutes of the Normandy battle and I'm watching people God blow up and pick up arms and, you know, their faces turn into holes and all of this oh, shit. God. And then he just shuts it off. He goes, that's awesome, right? And we just go to my mom's. <laughs> what is he, 13? <laughs> I, okay, so and my, I'm like, I was probably brother, like 15 or 16 or something, you know what I mean? But God still, it's like, it. that's crazy. Too. And he so, apologized a bunch. And I'm like, no, this was great. Like, I love this memory, you know? My, uh, my Private Ryan story, and I will once again acknowledge and thank Chris Lloyd for this, because I, I held on to this piece of cinematic criticism douchebaggery for a long, long time. And then I was corrected by Chris Lloyd of the film, yeah. So thank you. But my piece of, of debaggery was, you, you know how the, the story begins and ends at Arlington. And we have the old guy, you know, collapse and, and then it fades into to Normandy. Yeah. So for a long, long time, long time, if you were, and spoiler alert on the end of Saving Private Ryan, kiss my ass. Um, <laughs> but... But when when we when the f- camera fades from Matt Damon's eyes into Tom Hanks's eyes, I called bullshit in the theater and I said, "No, no, no, no! How could Tom? How could Matt Damon's character? How could Private Ryan remember the first two and two hours and fifteen minutes of the film? Because if you see the beginning, uh, to my knowledge, to my to my memory, the old man falls down." It zooms in on the old man's eyes, and I thought it turned into Tom Hanks's eyes. And Chris, I remember we had an IFJA meeting at Chris's house, and he, I, I was, I was puffing my chest with like Stanley Kowalski in Streetcar Named Desire. I I have a film critic acquaintance with the Napoleonic Code, and he just walked over put in the disc of Saving Private Ryan and showed me the opening scene and how wrong I was. <laughs> because 
because it's the old man's eyes and in a coat and there's the beach and the ocean and yep. the boats yep. and i went ah oh, shit you're right yeah yeah <laughs> but I it's was, only the end i was of so goddamn certain <laughs> yeah and you, and you would have been right however it's the fade in is only or the fade out is only the uh the end right yeah yeah but oh boy i sounded so so superior and no, I was, I was, I was not. Wow. Okay. The, Enjoy know, everybody. There's, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of reputation coming into this about Chris Lloyd. Excited to have him on because we're going to have a great conversation. No, um, no, it, it'd be good. Uh, and I'm excited for that. That's going to be coming up in August here. He's going to be on here. Cool. And, um, uh, but hey, uh, Matthew, we talked about a lot of stuff, but, uh, the Virgin Spring and Through a Glass Darkly are two of those things. And uh, the the next things that we're watching are cries and whispers. Lighter, yeah, cries and whispers. <laughs> well, sort of, kind of lighter, in a, in a different way. You know, do you do you cut your wrist this way or that way? Oh my do you gosh. cut your wrist this way? Or cries and whispers at way? least is in vibrant color, but um, that's true. That uh, and is I true. love black and white, but still, uh, cries and whispers and scenes from a marriage because this is a yes. film thing, and I'm this guy. We're gonna watch the theatrical cut now. You can. You've probably already seen it. And you can have your notes, but um, so I'm gonna I'm going to do that, and then uh, and that will air. I don't have it in front of me right now, but it'll air sometime soon. <laughs> it'll be a few weeks off though. Next next week is uh, uh, next week. We're, I'm gonna be meeting with my buddy Jake Bodelieri, who did the Cassavetes marathon with me before. We're actually gonna do cool. an episode on Wong Kar Wai and uh, celebrating his birthday. And we're going to be watching Chunking Express and Fallen Angels double feature because Ooh. they used to, oh. you know, they were originally supposed to be the same film, essentially. And so we thought it'd be fun to watch both of those and discuss those. So listeners, you can come listen to that. That will be uh, next week. And that'll be fun. Uh, but uh, Matthew, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to our next Bergman conversation. I'm excited to start getting caught up. Finally, I have to watch the silence and winter light together. Double feature. Cause you told me to, oh, and dude, <laughs> you just get out of Bummersville for a little bit. Get some, get some mocha fudge ripple or something, man, to, to balance that out. I'm telling you. Oh my gosh. Well, Hey, thanks, man. Thanks. Awesome. All right, that was our episode for today. We talked about uh, quite a bit of stuff here, uh, actually. We talked about A Quiet Place Part 2. We talked about Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. We also talked about uh, two more films on our Ingmar Bergman Cinema Marathon, Matthew Sosie and I. We talked about The Virgin Spring and Through a Glass Darkly. I hope you guys really enjoyed that. Um, I'm really looking forward to digging into these neo-noir movies that I was talking about. I've already gotten three under my belt. Can't wait to revisit some and see some new ones. Uh, again, if you want to go check out some cool neo-noir, go you know, get a month of the Criterion Collection. See how you feel about it. It's not on like PlayStation or uh, Xbox or anything. You have to have like a Roku or a smart TV, and uh, they have an app that you can go through. Or you know, if you have the internet through your TV, you can just pull it up on a on a you know just a window or whatever, just like an internet window thing. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Anyways, the point is this. Uh, also, go check out my Midwest Film Journal uh, article that I wrote called, uh, or wait, called what? The Professional. <laughs> it's on the film The Professional from 1944, directed by Luke Besson. I did it for the Natalie's Raps uh, kind of uh, column that they're doing, that they did for the month of June, actually. 
And so go check that out. Uh, again, I'll have it in the notes. That's my goal. All right, guys, I'm going to send you guys off now. We love you so much. Thank you for listening. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy. <laughs>